Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. The coastal resort of Biarritz in the south of France is returning to normality today, Tuesday, after hosting leaders of the powerful G7 group of nations and invited guests over the past few days. As is the norm at such events, the summit dominated the international news agenda. But unusually, much of the coverage focused this time on a country that wasn't represented and a leader who wasn't there. That's Brazil and its president, Jair Bolsonaro. Today, we're keeping the focus on Brazil and its controversial president. And I'm glad to say I'm joined in studio by our Sao Paulo-based correspondent, Tom Hennigan. Tom, you're back in Dublin for a short break. Welcome home. Thanks very much. Um, uh, Tom, one of the main news lines to emerge from the G7 was the decision to offer $20 million to help Brazil to fight the fires in the Amazon. This seemed initially to be, uh, there was a flat refusal from Bolsonaro, although I think that might be still in question, is it? Uh, Originally, he did refuse. Uh, Now he said he will accept if President Macron apologises for what Bolsonaro sees as um, the insults directed at him because Macron said he hoped that soon Brazil would have a president worthy of the office. Uh, Bolsonaro took offence at this, but Macron himself was uh, responding to the uh, being informed that Bolsonaro had insulted his wife. So it seems now to be quite a, a personal and bitter feud between the two leaders, whether that money will eventually be accepted by Brazil as an open question. Uh, Bolsonaro changes his mind and uh, his opinions on things quite, quite frequently and quickly. But at the end of the day, 20 million fighting uh, the fires in the Amazon is, you know, it's a it's a drop in the ocean. So it's not really that relevant anyway, I think. That feud with Emmanuel Macron, did you say, uh, as you say, it has become um, increasingly personal. What's the origin of that? I think there, there are two absolutely um, polar opposites um, in personality terms. Uh, But the Brazilians are quite aware that the French are not um, major enthusiasts for the trade deal between uh, Mercosur, the South American trade bloc and the European Union. But the French did send their international trade minister to Brasilia for talks with the um, Brazilian authorities, the Brazilian administration and Bolsonaro had uh, in his agenda time to meet this minister. This was about two months ago. Is that about right, two Tom? months ago. Yeah. And uh, just several hours before the meeting, uh, the presidential palace in Brasilia informed the French side that due to pressure on his agenda, President Bolsonaro wouldn't be able to meet um, the international trade minister. And so, you know, the French diplomats seemingly were a bit surprised by this, but accepted it only to find out at the time when Bolsonaro was supposed to be receiving the minister, he was doing a live broadcast on his Facebook page uh, from a barber's chair while having his hair cut, pontification about various uh, themes of the day. Uh, and the French diplomatic, uh, diplomats in Brasilia uh, were understandably um, insulted. And I say when news got back to Paris about what would happen, they were deeply unimpressed as well. And that fallout, if you like, Tom, between the, the French government and, and Bolsonaro um, has sort of continued right through to, to the G7, hasn't it? It has. Um, and, you know, last week, Macron said ahead of the summit that he was going to put uh, the crisis of the fires in the Amazon at the top of the agenda. Um, and obviously, in, a, in an age of, of concern about global warming, the images coming out of the Amazon have been quite shocking. 
uh, but Bolsonaro and uh, a lot of his supporters and even some people who were not necessarily identified as the supporters quickly um, claimed that Macron was not really interested in the environment, not really interested in the Amazon, but that this was classic French protectionism, that they know that the French uh, are, you know, not lukewarm about, uh, the French farmers anyway are lukewarm about the about the trade deal and that they were using the environment um, as their kind of classic way of trying to protect their home markets. Um, so that, you know, that was uh, the, the Brazilians pushed back, even despite the fact that many Brazilians are horrified about what's going on in, in, in the Amazon. In certain ways, Macron seizing on the issue for whatever his motivation allowed uh, Bolsonaro for, you know, his hardcore supporters to say to them, look, this is just the French getting uh, protectionist, as they always do, trying to stop our barriers, uh, our, trying to put up barriers to our goods coming in. And then you also had, uh, you know, the when the Macron said he was willing to discuss uh, international custody over the rainforest, some kind of mechanism to that allow the whole world to look after the rainforest. Uh, this played into deep fears amongst um, nationalist Brazilians and in the military who have long had this sort of paranoia that uh, the Amazon, which is a, a huge and underpopulated region, is vulnerable to foreign encroachment. And uh, straight away, there were reports of the military uh, wing in his government, which Bolsonaro had fallen out with recently, getting close again to the president to defend the country against this international threat. So Macron's uh, highlighting of this issue, uh, which many in Brazil supported, and we saw protests in, in Brazilian cities in defence of the rainforest, but for the sort of people who back Bolsonaro, uh, this uh, in many ways helped him divert attention from the environmental issue into turning it into a sovereignty issue. And his handling of the wildfires in general, Bolsonaro's, I mean, he initially dismissed their significance. Then he seemed to blame them on NGOs that he said were out to damage the government's reputation. And then he responded to international pressure by calling in the army to help fight the fires. I think there's no doubt all of this has damaged his reputation abroad. What has it done to his standing at home? Well, Bolsonaro is the dynamic um, that helped get him into power and that he's continued in office has always been to try and polarise uh, every question. So he knows that there is a large chunk of Brazilian society who fundamentally disagrees with his vision on pretty much everything. But there is a, a strong and pretty significant core of support for him. So despite what I think a lot of neutral observers, both domestic and foreign, look at and say has been a pretty chaotic and unproductive first eight months in office, 30% of Brazilians still are firmly supporting him and think he's, his government is doing a good job. And one of the ways he does that is by promoting a kind of cultural war on on every issue. So who you ask in Brazil will get you different answers about um, the, the issue in the Amazon at the moment. You will have many Brazilians. Brazilians um, have always, in, in international polling, have always put the environment pretty high up in their list of concerns. 
And uh, last week, there were protests in a number of cities across Brazil. When Bolsonaro made an announcement about the Amazon uh, in several cities, people went out and were banging pots and pans at the window, which is a traditional protest or sign of disapproval of, of the president. Um, so there are people who are totally against his environmental policy. But then there are others who are going, you know, this is being exaggerated. The problem is is not as bad as they're making out. Uh, you know, the international community is using this issue to try and limit Brazil's growth, to limit Brazil's um, attempts to reach its potential. And in in certain ways, I think the international community has to be careful. So, uh, you know, amongst Bolsonaro supporters has been circulated quite widely that per capita, Brazil emits far less carbon than the European Union does. Um, so they're saying, look, you know, why are they pointing the finger at us? Where are their forests? You know, why don't they clean up their act before they come down and tell us this? And many Brazilians are more sophisticated and go, look, the, the rainforest is our responsibility and it is a key component of trying to preserve the planet. But other Brazilians who a lot of them tend to support or voted for or back Bolsonaro, they're seizing on on these sort of uh, inconsistencies that have been highlighted in the European and international approach and saying, look, see, this is this is not what it seems. This isn't about the environment. This is them out to get us once again. The similarities with Donald Trump really are remarkable, aren't they? And it's including in terms of the support base, because he seems to have a, a fairly consistent, reasonably high level support base there that doesn't seem to worry about any kind of controversy affecting him. Is, is, is that the case? Yeah. I think it is. Um, he's been in office now for eight months and the most recent opinion poll showed that um, his disapproval rating, personal disapproval rating is now over 50%. That uh, disapproval of his government's performance has doubled uh, since the beginning of the year uh, and it's now at around 40, um, around 40%. But consistently, about a third of those polls support him and say he's doing a good job we like what he's at. And that's despite the fact that, you know, this was going to be a government that was finally going to get the economy going. It's touch and go whether it's going to slip into recession this year. That was going to lead to a flood of international investment into the country. That's not happening either. And part of the reason many in the market in Sao Paulo say is because a lot of foreign investors are looking at this very polemical figure in charge of the country and sort of saying, is that a safe place to invest at the moment? So he's actually, according to some market players, sabotaging his own efforts to boost foreign investment in the country. Um, and he hasn't really, I would say, managed to do other things which, you know, we were going to have a very quick pension reform. And that's what bought him a lot of support amongst economic liberals. That still hasn't come out. So there's very little to show for his first eight months in office. And yet people are consistently, a third of the population are saying, we think he's doing a good job. And I think that is because he is very good, like Donald Trump in the US, at um, playing the kind of reactionary culture war card and splitting Brazilians, dividing them, polarizing them on many issues. And uh, it mightn't get him a majority of support, but it does mean that he has a significant base that are right with him all the way, even though he's not delivering on any of his promises before he came in. He was notorious, Tom, before he was elected last year, um, um, noted for taking positions that were racist, misogynist, uh, homophobic. 
And yet he was elected by a comfortable margin. What had gone so badly wrong in Brazil that the electorate was prepared to turn to somebody who really, I think, could be described as an extremist, you know, to become their president? I, uh, first of all, I, you know, we all dance around and go, you know, could be described as an extremist. This is a far right and a proudly far right person. This is someone who, who in 30 years of public life has never expressed any um, admiration or support for Brazil's democratic settlement uh, which was the constitution of 1988 after it came out of the, its last dictatorship. And the things he said, are on, they're on the record. They're I mean, on the, this is public on the record. They don't repetition really here, but they undoubtedly are racist and homophobic. Uh, undoubtedly and so on, yeah. racist, homophobic, uh, misogynist, and, um, you know, even a support for not just the military dictatorship in Brazil, um, but for the torturers of that military dictatorship. Um, you know, he's proud to say that he he supports the the actual figures who've been identified as as torturing people and murdering people. Um, he caused huge embarrassment for uh, the president of Chile, Sebastián Piñera, earlier this year when he went there and standing beside Piñera, who is a a centre right president, <laughs> started expressing his admiration for Pinochet. And you can see the footage and, and Pineda is just like, what, what is this man saying? You know, it was, it was mortifying for him. Um, and he afterwards, once Bolsonaro was on the plane, released a statement saying, I, I don't agree with any of that. Um, and Bolsonaro was for uh, 30 years in public life as a very marginal figure. Um, he sort of expressed something um, about the far right, but that was always been on the margins of Brazilian public life, kind of cranky. He would uh, get interviews and he even once said to an interviewer, the only reason you ever ring me up is because she asked him, why do you make all these polemical statements? And he said, well, the only reason you ever invite me on is because I do this. But I think the real reason that he was able to catapult himself from the far fringes of Brazilian public life where he was a rather repulsive but um, ineffective figure into the presidency, goes back to 2014, I would say. That's when things really started to change in Brazil. There were, there were protests, street protests, people might remember, against the World Cup in 2013. And that showed that there was a growing dissatisfaction in Brazilian society. But you had two factors um, in the middle of 2014. You had the start of the corruption investigations and that started revealing that the ruling uh, left-wing workers' party in power um, were involved in corruption. But really, as the investigations continued, you saw all the traditional parties, the main parties that had governed Brazil at federal and state level for, for 30 years were involved in corrupt practices. And you also then had the start that year of Brazil's longest recession, which uh, saw the economy contract, uh, mass unemployment, real hardship, and it, and it went on and on and on. It was it, There was no light ever at the end of the tunnel. And Bolsonaro, even he was saying, came in saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to get the country moving again. And that's still not happening. It looks like it's going to slip back into recession. So there was a certain despair um, at the situation in the country and then also rejection of the traditional political class. And Bolsonaro brilliantly positioned himself as this saviour who could come from nowhere and save the country. And there's a strong tradition of that in South America of the, the national saviour, often with a military background. 
corruption was endemic, as you said, and he had a strong anti-corruption message, didn't he? Uh, albeit maybe a simplistic one, but that that was a key part of his um, kind of campaign platform. Absolutely. Uh, you know, he hammered hammered that constantly um, all through the campaign um, and often quite violently. You know, he it was all, you know, he has this sort of jokey manner where he would say very um, polemical statements if you, if you were to write them down. But when you see him saying it, it's always in a bit of a jokey kind of way. Um, but, you know, he talked about machine gunning and <laughs> uh, you know, what he would call red thieves, meaning, the, you know, his left-wing opponents. And this whole idea of cleansing the whole of Brazilian political life, that was very much part of his appeal. And he was able to, you know, almost use the fact that he'd been in public life for 30 years, but never had any executive role or was never part of any governing coalition. He was always on the fringes. And he was able to use that to sort of say, I've never got my hands uh, dirty, you know, doing anything wrong, which looks like it was actually a lie that we have to remember that there, there are a lot of questions about his family's um, wealth and assets and how they accumulated those, both Bolsonaro himself and his sons, all of who went into public life. But at the time, the population really wasn't ready to hear uh, that or they heard it and sort of thought, well, compared to the tens of billions that the others are robbing, the fact that he has a couple of extra apartments in Rio, that doesn't seem that important at the moment. And also on the same point, Tom, you have an opinion piece um, published um, on the Irish Times website on, on Monday and pointing to the fact that while the world's attention right now maybe is on the Amazon wildfires issue, an issue that's causing growing, growing disquiet in Brazil is the way Bolsonaro has set about attacking or undermining state institutions whose job it is to investigate corruption in public life. Yes. Uh, so when he when he was um, building his administration, one of his big kind of trump cards was he was able to get the judge that that led the anti-corruption investigations that started in 2014, Sergio Moro. He was able to get him to become his justice minister. And he pretty much promised uh, him, you know, a, a free hand in doing everything that he needed to clean up corruption in Brazil. And this was really a huge um, boom for his administration right at the beginning. Moro has found out, though, that Bolsonaro is really not willing to spend any political capital in helping him promote his anti-corruption program. And what Bolsonaro, when it comes to corruption, has shown himself much more, rather than actually cleaning it up, He's shown himself much more interested in attacking the institutions and the people leading them whose job is to investigate, identify wrongdoing and um, bring the perpetrators to justice. And the main institutions he's going after also happen to be the ones that are investigating his son, Flavio, his eldest son, um, who is now a senator, but who has pretty serious accusations of... of um, wrongdoing against him. And those investigations are live and ongoing. And Bolsonaro really, you know, when he talks publicly about the investigation into his son Flavio, you can see his anger at what is happening because it directly undermines his claim to be an anti-corruption crusader. And while ordinary Brazilians are horrified what's going on in the Amazon, within the institutions of state, within the, the, the closed political world in Brasilia, there's increasing concern at uh, Bolsonaro. He's not just now 
ranting and raving against these investigations, he now seems to be actively moving to neuter the institutions uh, undertaking them to try and, and basically get his uh, the investigations into his son stopped. And um, what kind of things is he doing, just maybe to give us an example? So uh, a classic one was for the first time, I believe, since the return of democracy, the regional head of a, of a federal police division in Brazil was was pushed out of the job by the president. So the head of the federal police force in Rio de Janeiro um, was was sacked, essentially, uh, under Bolsonaro's command. And he was the one who was overseeing the federal police investigation into Flavio Bolsonaro's activities in Rio. Uh, when he left, normally it is for the federal police service itself to indicate um, a replacement and for the justice minister to approve it. That's not what happened. Bolsonaro tried to intervene and put another head in to the federal police in Rio. Uh, he eventually backed off, but only after it was reported that all the regional uh, divisions of the federal police in Brazil were willing to resign en masse to, in protest at Bolsonaro's interference. And, and that backed off. Um, and he backed off because of that. But that was a very, very worrying signal of his attempts because the federal police in the last 30 years has become an increasingly independent and professional organisation. And so that was seen as a, as a real backward move. Uh, the the organisation that invests uh, investigates money laundering, he interfered in that as well. He pushed out the head of that. That was, that organisation, that uh, federal agency was to be nested under Sergio Moro uh, authority in the justice ministry Again, that's been taken off Moro and has been put into the central bank, which is not the worst outcome, but it's not exactly putting it under the command of his caped anti-corruption crusader. And then he's also um, recently moved against the Federal Revenue Service, which is obviously a, a key component of um, trying to identify and track and prosecute corruption. And there again, the upper echelons of that service all threatened to rebel if he didn't um, if he didn't back off, but that's still ongoing. So there there have been there has been institutional pushback, but it's almost uh, a, a throwback to a much earlier time in Brazil to see this level of presidential interference in these sort of organisations. And, and that prompts the question, Tom. I mean, how, does Brazil have sufficiently strong state institutions to, to curb the excesses of a, an autocratic president? I'd like to say it does, but I think that's going to be put to the test now. And um, I would not be overly confident in saying, saying you know, how it's going to go. Um, I do think, though, for, for various reasons that are very much linked to the fact that it's Bolsonaro rather than Bolsonaro as an authoritarian, that, um, that he will not be able to, that there will be enough pushback that he will not be able to undermine or do away with the checks and balances within the Brazilian system. And Brazil has quite a sophisticated system um, by South American standards. And I think a lot of that has to do with size. So you have a lot of power is at state level. You have a lot of power in the Congress. And um, those institutions as well are very protective of their power. Um, and I think that will that will provide an important check. 
on Bolsonaro. But I think a lot of it is, is because Bolsonaro is so obviously unprepared for the job. Um, this is someone who is, has enormous difficulty in articulating what he wants to do. This is someone who can't talk in any way seriously about the economy. Um, you know, who even just jokes, oh, if it's the economy, ask my, my, my super economics are because I don't really understand that issue. That was his whole pitch during the election campaign. He, he's very limited. He's very uncouth as well. Um, you know, this is a man who, um, even amongst many of the people who voted for him, may be holding their nose because they didn't want the Workers' Party returning to power, are now increasingly horrified. And you can sense that in in um, you know Brazilian society, um, so to allow some an authoritarian of such a of such a base character essentially uh, do away with the country's checks and balance, I don't think that will be allowed. But the fear among some commentators is is that you know is Bolsonaro a precursor for maybe a more sophisticated authoritarian to come along later? And he's, he's identifying how you would go about undermining checks and balances and would a more sophisticated, would a smoother autocrat later um, be able to achieve it? That would be a more open question, I think, particularly because the, um, the traditional political uh, universe in Brazil has not really woken up to the fact that the population are just sick and tired of it. And that's because they are self-serving. They are corrupt. It's a, a very inefficient system. And, you know, and many people in Brazil are now seeing the Congress as a, a useful bulwark against Bolsonaro. And it has proven to be so far. And yet we saw yesterday reports that the federal police have indicated to the chief federal prosecutor that charges should be brought against the Speaker of the Lower House, who is not yet announced it, but everyone assumes he wants to run against Bolsonaro in 2022. And the crimes are not that, you know, in Brazilian political terms, they're not the worst. But again, it shows, you know, like it's passive corruption, money laundering and campaign finance violations, the classic, you know, Brazilian political corruption. And that is the problem that uh, there is no visible alternative from the traditional political world emerging with a clean pair of hands and there's no sense of that political world, traditional class trying to clean up its act as if it's learnt anything. And that's on both the left and the right. So the, the left are pretty much obsessed at the moment with just one objective, which is to get former President Lula out of jail, where the right are, you know, scrambling to get a traditional figure who is uh, less repulsive to voters than Bolsonaro, but doesn't necessarily mean he's in any way uh, a major reformer or has a clean pair of hands. So I think the the question about Bolsonaro, I think it would be unlikely he'd be able to erode the checks and balances, but it's it's the process over time of eroding these. And, it, you know, he might just be a, a, a kind of a first wave, but it's the later ones coming in. If the system doesn't reform itself, how long the population will go, well, what's the point of defending democracy if it doesn't serve for anything? And of course, another um, check on, on democracy, important check on, on in any strong democracy is, is a, an, to have a strong and independent media. What's the state of the media in Brazil? Brazil's media, uh, you know, is quite varied, particularly because of um, 
the advent of the internet and you know this is a global thing that we've seen in lots of countries so there is a vibrant um, and varied press in Brazil but the main media outlets that um, reach large parts of the country are quite conservative Brazilian television would be quite conservative a lot of them during the campaign uh, were quite neutral on Bolsonaro um, even though I'm sure many of their reporters understood that this man was totally inappropriate for the job but um, the the reality is that the media now, even though um, many more conservative organisations did give him an easy ride in last year's election campaign, he's just targeting them all. So, you know, along with the NGOs he accused of setting fire uh, to the Amazon last week, he's also blamed journalists in Brazil from blowing the, the, the question up out of proportion for, uh, you know, putting Brazil on the international naughty step. Any problem Bolsonaro faces, he, you know, can be pretty much relied on to turn on on the media. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, as I think as journalists, you sort of expect a bit of pushback from power on your reporting. But a lot of the media in Brazil, like media everywhere else, is in financial crisis. And um, a lot of media depends on government advertising, government spending. And Bolsonaro recently said that he was going, you know, critical media would be, he would be cutting off that funding. So that's a more sinister move against um, against freedom of expression, but it's attacking it financially rather than um, locking up journalists or anything like that. Does he use Twitter um, to bypass the media and indeed to attack the media in the same way that Donald Trump does? Yes. So uh, Bolsonaro and his sons are very active on Twitter and Facebook. And then more sinisterly, um, they spread, well, everyone believes it is them or people linked to them, spread fake news and misinformation, conspiracy the theories through WhatsApp. Again, there's similarities to Trump are remarkable, aren't they? And even having the, the combative, combative sons yeah. on social media, you know, fighting Very his corner. Very so. And, you know, Bolsonaro has now nominated his third son to be Brazil's ambassador in Washington, which has, again, horrified the, the political elite because Eduardo Bolsonaro, uh, you know, as well as being very distemperate, has no preparation for the job. Um, that has to be confirmed by the Senate. It's increasingly likely that the Senate will vote against that and he won't get it. But the, Bol the Bolsonaro family have a, a kind of, you know, a huge admiration for Donald Trump and um, one of the reasons that was given by people in conversation with the with the military element in Bolsonaro's government of why they were staying in it, even as the Bolsonaro's were raining down humiliations on him, was that they were there to try and limit what they see as his subservience to um, to the United States. So Brazil, even under the the military dictatorship in the sixties and seventies, to the frustration of the White House even though it was a very anti-communist regime, was quite insistent on pursuing an independent um, foreign policy, as where the Bolsonaros are very much uh, seen as quite subservient to what the Trump administration wants. And that's from trying to move the Brazilian embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, uh, copying what Trump did, even to um, Eduardo Bolsonaro, uh, who he's nominated to be his ambassador, lobbying heavily at the request of the Trump White House for uh, the Citibank, uh, uh, sorry, the AT&T, um, I think it's CBS merger, 
which violates various cross-holding regulations in Brazil. And the Bolsonaro's are lobbying their own regulators to get that passed at the request of the Trump White House. And so, Tom, just to come back to the events of the last few days and the, the, the global outrage over the, the threat to the Amazon and, and Bolsonaro's seeming indifference to or even support for the you know destruction of the rainforest caused by deforestation and wildfires um, and so on, that led to worldwide protests in recent days. And I not sure there was a Brazilian embassy anywhere in the world that didn't have a demonstration outside it. Would he be impervious to that kind of international criticism or would his administration likely be kind of shaken by those events? I think he is impervious, but uh, the more traditional power structures around him, the foreign ministry and the agricultural minister has been quite concerned that this could lead to a boycott of, of Brazilian produce abroad. Um, which would be a major blow to the economy. I think they have kind of corralled him and said, look, we can't, you know, trawl the international community over a question like the rainforest. And so you did see um, Bolsonaro announced that he was going to send the military up to up to um, try and combat the fires. But in, you know, in reality, um, it, it will re- what will really take to make a difference in the Amazon is not sending up the army to try and combat fires or prosecuting farmers who set fire to illegally cleared land. It will be for Bolsonaro to stop undermining and attacking the country's own Environmental Protection Agency, which he has done um, pretty much from day one when he when he came in. Like one of the, the first few weeks uh, the things he did was he fired an environmental um, agent who fined him for illegal fishing off the coast of Rio in 2012. He seems to have a visceral problem with anyone who uh, tr- is involved in protecting the rainforest. And that would mean putting money back into that agency and uh, putting people back in charge of that agency who are actually concerned with protecting the environment. Um, which is not the case at the moment. His environmental minister, you know, that's a, he's a, he's a walking joke in in the administration. Spends his time trying to undermine uh, the claims of environmentalists, which are based on science, um, rather than actually backing them up and trying to bring them to to the presidency. But you know, the, in my in my time in in Brazil, we've had previous cycles of destruction. Then we've had previous cycles of. Uh, clamping down on it and bringing down the level of deforestation and, and preservation. And now it seems we're moving into another cycle of destruction. And this is not all linked to Bolsonaro. It's just not. Uh, some of this is the fruit of policies from um, previous governments implemented. The, the municipality with the highest amount of deforestation is where they're building a huge dam that was approved under the Workers' Party. Um, and also the trade war uh, between the US and, and China. China has retaliated by pretty much stopping buying soy from the US. So they're looking for alternative sources. They're stampeding into the Brazilian soy market. And that is bidding up the price of soy in Brazil. So I think there are people uh, who are taking a, a bet that you know this could be a quick way to make money. So there are, there are much deeper underlying dynamics that have always for decades now have been um, um, playing against the preservation of the rainforest. But to get any kind of a handle on it would take a change, a, a, a major change of thinking within the government. And, and unfortunately, I don't see anything like that happening at the moment. Tom, thanks for coming in today. Great to see you. Thanks, Chris. That's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.